At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. It's kind of a miracle that Manhattan as we know it today exists at all. The swampy, forested, rocky, oddly shaped, long, narrow island that was home to the Lenape and which greeted the first European settlers in the 17th century wasn't exactly the easiest place to establish a community. As predominantly Dutch and English settlers created New Amsterdam and then New York, this new settlement was all about making money. Unlike other early American cities that were founded by those in search of places to practice more spiritual belief systems, New York, from its earliest days, was in one way or another about chasing the gold. I heard a New York City tour guide say once that to understand the history of New York, just follow the population's push up the island of Manhattan, particularly throughout the 19th century and where people stop and congregate for a time, well, something interesting certainly will be going on. The early 19th century New York City fathers knew the population most certainly would expand north. It was really the only place that they could go. Let's remember that New York didn't bring all the boroughs together until the very end of the 19th century to create the great metropolis. It was those early civic leaders that implemented the famous grid pattern of avenues and streets beginning in 1811 to help give this movement north a sense of urban organization. Today's show is a very special one, since we will be covering more than a century of New York City history in just about an hour as we take a tour up the island of Manhattan to see just how it all connects and tells the story of how the Gilded Age, at least from a social and geographical perspective, came to be. As Russell Shorto writes in his groundbreaking work, The Island at the Center of the World, Beneath the level of myth and politics and high ideals, down where real people live and interact, Manhattan is where America began. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. 
My guest today, the extraordinary Keith Talion, knows aspects of Manhattan likely more than just about anyone. With his passion and insight for history and with the lens of an urban planner, he decided to walk the length of Manhattan and walk it he did on New Year's Eve day of 2019. From the tip of the seaport to the top of the Bronx, it took six hours and rather astonishingly only one pair of shoes. But Keith took it farther than that, as we will discuss. During the long, empty days of New York's pandemic lockdown, Keith walked every single street on Manhattan Island, about 3,000 blocks overall, and somewhere close to 1,000 miles. And what's more, he shared his walks and his discoveries on his Instagram account, Keith York City. Keith joins me here today as we take a virtual trip up the island of Manhattan with his unique eye to show us just how it all fits together from the early Dutch days of merchant trading to the extravagant rolls of the dice that built the untethered fortunes of the Gilded Age. So please sit back, pour a nice cup of tea, and let us take you on a journey as we follow 19th century New Yorkers chasing the gold. Keith Talion is a historian and writer here in New York City. He holds degrees in history and urban planning and graduated from Hunter College with a master's degree in 2019. He is a contributing writer for the Daily Beast and has been a guest lecturer for the Cooper Hewitt Museum, City College, and the National Arts Club. He has been profiled by Condé Nast, The Times of London, El Decor, and The New Yorker. Keith is also a licensed New York City tour guide and currently leads public and private tours of his favorite corners of New York City through his own tour company. His truly brilliant Instagram account, at Keith York City, has over 40,000 deeply passionate followers, and I encourage all my listeners to follow him there. Keith, I could not be more honored and excited to have you join me today on The Gilded Gentleman. Thank you so much. I couldn't be happier to be here. So, Keith, when you do your Gilded Age tours, what's the most commonly asked question that you get? I'm shocked by how often guests ask questions that I've never heard before. Uh, so I have to say it's it's a vast spectrum of questions I get. And I, I struggle to think of one that comes up most often. I try to get ahead of the more common questions like um, why were so many of these mansions demolished? That ultimately becomes the whole theme of the tour is explaining how the city was growing in the context of the 19th century, you have to understand, you, you can't just study the mansions of the Gilded Age. You have to understand how the city was evolving, changing, growing, um, and how the economy and industry and everything else was, was nesting into that growth to then understand why these homes and other structures were built, where they were built, when they were built, and why they were lost. So again, I try to get ahead of this question, but generally the most common curiosity is why is there so little architectural, physical remnant left from the, the wealthy part of the Gilded Age. And in a way, that really forms the basis of our podcast today, because we are going to go chasing the gold up the island. So let's begin our tour, Keith, yeah. shall we? Yeah, All absolutely. Right. So we're focusing on Manhattan Island here. Mm -hmm. Now, Manhattan has often been called the long, skinny island, because that is exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Just about 13 miles long. It's not even two and a half miles wide. I really find that extraordinary for people that are not New Yorkers or familiar with New York. Really, mm -hmm. 
my friends, that's one and a half million people mm -hmm. crammed on an island that's 13 miles by two and a half miles long. So it's a really very small, mm -hmm. small part. And throughout most of the 19th century, New York was Manhattan and Gilded Age New York was Manhattan. So, so Keith, how does that physical geography of the island of Manhattan, how does that contribute to how the Gilded Age began and how really the history of New York continued. Yeah. So from a historical perspective and from an urban planning perspective, the shape of Manhattan Island and how it was settled and developed through the 19th century is really satisfying because it's a long skinny island and because the Dutch settled the city at the very southern tip of the island, the natural topography, the natural geography of the island meant that the population could only really grow in one direction, which was northward. And there were complications to how the city grew. And of course, there were always people living uptown in villages like Harlem and Bloomingdale and eventually places like Yorkville and Carmensville. Uh, but generally speaking, the city of New York grew from the south up and because this, the island is so long and skinny, it could only grow linearly up the island, meaning that the generally speaking, when you walk around Manhattan, mo moving from downtown to uptown, the city becomes younger, if that makes sense. The older city is downtown, the newer city is uptown with places like Inwood and Marble Hill being the the, the newest, the babies of the neighborhoods of, uh, of Manhattan, generally speaking. So let's start pre-Gilded Age, mm -hmm. uh, shall we? In the, and when I asked you to send me some thoughts on on places and subjects and stops you'd like to make on our little trip up the island, the first one on your list was Canal Street, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting because that is way downtown. It runs through today's Chinatown and Soho and Tribeca. Can you talk about why you would choose to start there and why for you that's where the story begins? Yeah. So when New York City was settled by the Dutch in the 1620s, it was all the way down uh, where Battery Park and Bowling Green are today. And by the early 18th century, the whole area south of what's now Chamber Street had essentially been filled up with houses and churches and businesses and wharfs and everything that went along with the port economy of the city. Now, what's forgotten today is that the city's physical growth was stymied up until the 19th century by the existence of a massive network of springs, ponds, and swamps uh, from about Chamber Street to roughly Broome or Spring Street in what's now Soho. Those swamps prevented the city's natural growth uptown until the city could figure out how to get rid of the swamp. And so that's why when talking about the evolution of the city up to the point of the Gilded Age in the late 19th century, I start with the draining of that swamp, which was done by the dredging of a canal through the middle of it. So the springs that fed this swamp existed and arguably still exist today beneath what's roughly now Chinatown, around the area where Columbus Park is. Those springs were used as the first fresh water source for New York City, but they also fed this massive swamp that prevented the city's growth. And so around 1805, finally, the city cut a canal from those springs in what's now Chinatown at a diagonal to the west out to Hudson, out to the Hudson River to drain all the water of those swamps. With them drained and dried, the land where the swamps used to be were euphemistically renamed Lispinard Meadows after the Lispinard family who lived there um, so that people wouldn't, you know, arguably they wouldn't remember that Lispinard Meadows used to be a swamp very recently. With it dried out and renamed Lispinard Meadows, that whole area was able to be gridded out and developed as essentially the city's first suburb. With the draining of that swamp, the population of New York now could grow uptown for the first real meaningful time, which allowed for the eventual march of society and the, the larger population up the island through the 19th century. That's one of the 
points that I find most fascinating for people to understand is that the topography of Manhattan really had to be changed mm-hmm. and adjusted for the population to move. It wasn't just, yeah. oh, we're just going to move uptown. I mean, these were boulders and swamps. Mm-hmm. Some of them are still sitting in Central Park, right? Yep. I mean, they had to change the land, right? Yeah, and arguably some of uh, New York's obsession with um, terraforming goes back all the way to our founding by the Dutch. The Dutch are probably the most famous uh, nation on earth for terraforming, reclaiming land from the sea. Um, New York City, so much of Manhattan Island is landfill that was just rubble and debris dumped into the Hudson and the East Rivers to make more buildable land, to make more money for the city's economy. But part of that was also draining swamps and blowing up boulders and just trying as hard as possible to make as much of Manhattan as possible, as flat and buildable as possible, so we can continue making money. I think it's kind of a miracle it's as flat as it is, right? It, it <laughs> Given is. Given what I mean, they had to start yeah. with. I mean, Manhattan. the word Manhattan comes from an old Muncie Lenape word, Manahatta, which roughly translates to island of hills. But what settlers and uh, American powers that be through the 18th and 19th centuries did was shave off all those hills, dump the debris into the water or into the surrounding swamps and ponds and just make everything as flat of a canvas as they could make. So our stops today, as we start our chase up the island, will actually include several parks and squares. We're going to talk about Mm -hmm. Washington Square, Union Square, Madison Square. So why is it so important to really look at these parks and squares and these wide open spaces? What was important about them and what significance did they have? You have to remember that Central Park, which we now take for granted as being kind of the axis around which Manhattan's population rotates, it didn't exist even in theory until the 1850s and construction didn't really begin in earnest until the 1860s and it wasn't completed until the 1870s. So for most of the 19th century, access to green space was limited to either these small pocket parks that dotted the landscape or if you were wealthy enough and and you could afford a carriage and a horse and the free time to do so, you could go out to the countryside of upper Manhattan to exotic rural locations like Greenwich Village or Yorkville, places that are now very much part of the city in the 19th century for most of the 19th century would have been far outside the established city. So there there was a bit of a, a justifiable debate over whether or not the city even needed green space. Now, without Central Park having been drawn up yet, small parks like Washington Square, Union Square served a more social purpose to anchor places around which wealthy New Yorkers could coalesce. The parks served less as active locations for ball playing or jogging than as meeting locations and, for place, and places for people to promenade and, and encounter one another serendipitously in the city. Weren't they also perceived as healthier places to live because there was fresh air here, which of course was not so much the case further right. downtown? Yeah, the more access you had to nature, quote unquote nature, you know, how, how natural actually is Union Square, but having access to natural green spaces like that. And this is still something that's bandied about in urban planning circles. Access to green spaces meant to make for a healthier, better life in general. Whether or not all of that that's entirely true, that was the the thought that having access to green space was good for you, especially in an increasingly industrialized, overcrowded city. 
So the first park that we're going to see is Washington Square Park, which historically was just a little bit to the east of Greenwich Village, and it's Mm -hmm. where Fifth Avenue actually begins. But at this point in New York City history, we're still a little pre-Gilded Age at this point. And Mm -hmm. today, of course, the park is still noted for its very wide variety of Mm -hmm. New Yorkers that find themselves there. And I particularly love the north side of the park, which still has so many of its original Greek Revival townhouses lining it. Can you talk a little bit about Washington Square and Washington Square Park and what was important about this place and what time are we talking about now? Yeah, so I, I, we can go back as far as as possible when talking about Washington Square. Usually uh, when discussing Washington Square, I begin by introducing the the canal, what's now Canal Street that drained Lispinard Meadows. Lispinard Meadows that we talked about a little while ago is now the neighborhoods that we call Soho and Tribeca. With that area drained and turned into developable, gridded neighborhood uh, residential space, the area of what's now Washington Square and the kind of central village area was really next on the chopping block for development as the city grew. And you also have to keep in mind that in the 1820s, construction was wrapping up on a massive infrastructure project up in New York State, Erie Canal. The Erie Canal connected Lake Erie in the west at Buffalo to the Hudson River near Albany and allowed for all goods and people, all traffic uh, from what's now the Midwest or what was then called the Northwest Territories to reach the eastern seaboard and the Atlantic trade via New York Harbor. With the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, New York City underwent massive population and economic growth. Uh, With that growth, the city knew that they needed to clear more space for the rapid growth of the city that they knew was going to come. And one of the most important things they did to allow people to move north of Lispinard Meadows, north of what we now call Houston Street, which Uh, was originally called North Street to give you some idea of how far removed even Houston Street used to be considered to the city that they called it North Street. The city took a piece of land that they already owned, which they'd been using since the 1790s as a potter's field to bury mostly victims of yellow fever and other plagues. They shut down that potter's field, landscaped it, and turned it into a parade ground or a military drill and promenading space. That former potter's field turned parade ground is what's now Washington Square. With that shutdown in 1825, the same year the Erie Canal opened and its reopening as a park in 1827, the area around that former potter's field was suddenly much more valuable as a residential development site. So all the landowners and developers who owned this formerly very unvaluable land around this old potter's field now rapidly We're talking late 1820s, early 1830s, rapidly began to carve up the land and turn it into a new wealthy neighborhood to attract those New Yorkers who could afford to do so out to the suburbs of this area on the outskirts of Greenwich Village. Now, Greenwich Village had already existed since at least the 18th century over on the banks of the Hudson River, but this area around Washington Square, the former Potter's Field, developed in earnest in the 1830s. And so the houses that you mentioned on the north side of Washington Square are remnants of that first wave of development around Washington Square. So let's talk a little bit about New York real estate, okay, Keith? Because... Very early in the 19th century, we really start to see the influence of John Jacob Astor. He sort of enters the story. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about who John Jacob Astor was, but let's talk about who the first Astor actually was. Yeah, so the first Astor to come over to the United States, as far as I'm aware, was actually Henry Astor, who was the older brother of Johann Jacob Astor or John Jacob Astor. 
Henry had been recruited as a Hessian soldier fighting on the British side of the American Revolution. However, he came over to the United States and as far as I'm aware, never actually fought. He dropped out of the army and became a cook. And when the war ended in 1783, when the soldiers, when British soldiers finally left New York City in November of 1783 in what uh, is known to history as Evacuation Day, Henry apparently wrote back to his brother Johann in Waldorf, Germany and told him, you should get over here. This new nation has a lot of economic opportunity that you can come take advantage of. And so Johann Jakob, anglicized as John Jacob Astor, immigrated in 1784 and began his rise as uh, the, the economic patriarch of the Astor family. Well, and he started off trading fur pelts and then gave that up because he clearly saw where the money was going and mm -hmm. started to invest in in real estate. And my understanding was through a lot of the 19th century, Trinity Church and John Jacob Astor were certainly major landholders in, in New York or in Manhattan. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. John Jacob Astor insinuated himself very early on into the fur trade in central New York. And it's funny, I, I feel like as modern New Yorkers, we don't appreciate how important the fur trade was to New York City's economy and for how long it was important because you have to remember when the Dutch founded New Amsterdam, what would become New York City in the 1620s, it was to serve as a fur trading outpost as part of the larger New Netherland colony as part of the newly ascendant global Dutch trading empire. So in the 1620s, fur was the basis for our economy. And in the 1780s, when John Jacob Astor immigrated over from Germany, he still was able to become very rich off of the transatlantic fur trade, meaning that for at least 160 years, fur was still one of the chief economic engines for New York City, which is just wild to me. But as you said, John Jacob was very prescient in investing in New York City real estate. Before most of his wealthy compatriots in New York City recognized the uh, future advantages of buying land up Manhattan Island, John Jacob invested virtually every dollar he earned off the fur trade in buying up cheap cheap real estate former farms and estates up the length of Manhattan Island, knowing that if he just sat on it, as the city grew, that land would become much more valuable for either him or his heirs, which came to be true. And by the end of the 19th century, the Astors were referred to as the landlords of New York. Well, as we start to move a little bit east from Washington Square, we hit what is now Astor Place. Mm -hmm. And that was all, of course, Astor land. That's why it was why it's now called Astor Place. But a little bit north of that is Grace Church. And I always find it fascinating when we look at this sort of history up the aisle, we look at parks, churches, and places of worship. That tells us a lot, too, because that signifies a certain community. So can you talk about Grace Church? Talk about how it was built. It's a beautiful neo-Gothic church and a very important one. Absolutely. Um Grace Church was completed in 1846 on Broadway, on the east side of Broadway at 10th Street. In 1846, uh, the area around Astor Place, the area around Washington Square were still very wealthy, exclusive, desirable residential districts. But even as early as the mid-1840s, particularly younger generations of wealthy New Yorkers were beginning to creep up the island toward newer neighborhoods around Union Square, Gramercy Park, and even as far north as Madison Square by 1846 when Grace Church opened. And so Grace Church, from a from a real estate perspective, chose that location kind of halfway between Astor Place and Union Square very wisely because they were trying to keep one foot downtown in the older neighborhoods where their existing congregations still lived, but also looking forward to the uptown movement of the city. Uh, those people living on and above 14th Street could still get down to Grace Church. And, and 
aside from its location being very advantageous, Grace Church's architecture allowed it to be a point of pride for for New York City society. You have to remember that uh, the Episcopal Church, which is just the American version of the Church of England, um, was extremely important to New York City society. Virtually anybody in society was expected to be to attend church at an Episcopal church uh, such as Trinity or Grace or eventually St. Thomas or Calvary. Um, if you were an Episcopalian, the kind of silver medal denomination was Presbyterianism. But those were really the, the main socially acceptable churches to attend. And so Grace Church, by placing itself so advantageously in such a beautiful building uh, as it was one of the first or the first major commission given to the architect James Renwick Jr., who would go on shortly after Grace Church's completion to design St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is what he's most famous for. Grace Church held on as a majorly influential society church deep into the 19th and even the early 20th century. Even as people had begun moving as far north as the Upper East Side, they still would descend down to the old neighborhood on Lower Broadway for their weddings and their funerals and other major social events. So now as we move a little bit north from Grace Church, we actually run into Union Square. So another significant square. First of all, Keith, can you talk about why it's called Union Square because I think there's some confusion there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a general misconception I find in my, you know, among my tour guests, which is very understandable that Union Square is either named for the Union side in the Civil War or even for labor unions because later in the 20th century Union Square specifically became a major rallying point for labor union uprisings and protests, but the name is actually much older than either of those two events. Um, the name Union Square or originally Union Place is simply a descriptor uh, because Union Place or Union Square is where all of the major north-south highways or roads running the length of Manhattan Island intersected. So quite literally, Broadway, the Bowery, the Bloomingdale Road, the Post Road and Kingsbridge Road and the Middle Road all came together roughly in that area between what's now Union Square and Madison Square. And so that point where they came together was just generally known as Union Place for the union of the streets that occurred there. One of the things I always find interesting in tracing this history up the island is to look at entertainment districts because they moved up the island Mm -hmm. too, right? Like Mm -hmm. everybody else. And sort of mid-century-ish, if I'm correct, Union Square was the entertainment district of New York. What was there and what happened? Yes. So it was around Union Square that the city's entertainment district and theater district began to coalesce along Broadway, which hadn't happened before. Up till the 1830s and maybe the early 1840s, Broadway had been considered a very respectable residential address. The issue was, and this plays into the story of Astor Place and Washington Square as well, was that by the 1830s, wealthy New Yorkers began to recognize that as attractive as Broadway was to them as a residential address, it was just as attractive to businesses and industry. And in an age long before any zoning laws existed, there was nothing stopping a hotel or a factory or or God forbid, a brothel opening up right next to your newly built mansion on Broadway. And so wealthy New Yorkers began to look for alternatives to Broadway that were close enough that they could still enjoy all the benefits of promenading and shopping and going to church on Broadway, but not having to deal with all of the less desirable aspects of life that existed on Broadway. Now, let's take a little detour. Well, a little bit. We're still going north, but now we're going to go east a little bit to really one of my favorite parks in all of New York City, and that's Gramercy Park. Mm-hmm. And this is a very old history, too, that, again, may surprise some people. So can you talk about how that was established, what even Gramercy means, and who and what happened there? 
Yeah, so Gramercy Park was a very deliberately planned neighborhood. The the character of it today in the 21st century is almost entirely thanks to the prescient foretelling of the uh, landowner who helped bring the neighborhood into existence. Uh, that man was named Samuel Samuel Ruggles. Um, he owned the piece of land that would come to be known as Gramercy, but the name Gramercy really has no meaning beyond an anglicized version of an older name for that area that sounds much nicer than a swamp. It's sort of like the Lispinard Meadows of uptown. But swamp Park doesn't sound so good. It does not. I don't think it would have attracted the same level of, uh, of societal acceptance. But as I was saying, with Broadway kind of being given over fully to commercial development, neighborhoods like Astor Place and Washington Square, just off Broadway, close enough to enjoy it, far enough away to be away from it, became the most desirable places for high society to live as they marched their way up the island as the city's population grew. And so enter Samuel Ruggles. He recognized that his land was now very valuable being so close to Union Square, but just far enough away that it wasn't going to be destroyed by the by the march of commerce. But he wanted to do more to prevent Gramercy from being subsumed or consumed by the march of commerce and industry. And so what he did uh, very smartly, arguably from a real estate standpoint, was rather than just grid out the neighborhood and allow it to be taken by individual owners. He anchored the neighborhood by a park, what's now Gramercy Park, and then he added covenants to all the land that ring the park itself. And so everyone who owned a piece of property facing Gramercy Park owned a share in the park itself, meaning that the character of the neighborhood couldn't radically be altered without almost a cooperative agreement amongst all the other landowners. So today, 190-ish years after Ruggles established Gramercy Park and the Gramercy neighborhood, the area immediately around Gramercy Park remains extremely exclusive, quiet, untouched by commercialism. And all of that is because it functions essentially as one giant organism protective over the park. Now, two of my favorite places in the park, one is The Players, which is a private club in one of the old original brownstones, and the other is the Stuyvesant Fish House. Oh, Keith, will you talk about both of those, particularly the Stuyvesant Fish House, in whichever order you choose? Yeah, both of those houses are great examples of the staying power of Gramercy. What I love about the houses immediately ringing Gramercy Park is that unlike most old high society neighborhoods like Astor Place and Washington Square, Gramercy Park had enough staying power that when the original builders or owners of the houses on the park died or chose to move away, rather than the houses being demolished and replaced by department stores or factories, they were sold to other wealthy families who just renovated them to whatever aesthetic caprice dominated that day. And so you see not just beautiful old houses, but you see uh, layers of uh, architectural evolution, stylistic evolution in residential living in New York City on Gramercy Park that's very hard to find anywhere else because generally speaking, houses weren't renovated. They were simply knocked down or converted to other use. So the uh, the Stuyvesant and Mamie Fish House, which stands at the southeast corner of Gramercy Park South and Irving Place, if you look at it from the street, if, if any of you are listening to this while walking around the city, look at that house and ignore the black shutters, ignore the mansard roof and the garden on top, and just look at the red brick box that forms the basis for the building structure. That is very typical of the type of high-end house that would have been built in the early 1840s when Gramercy was first developed. But in the 1880s, 
in keeping with the the exclusivity of Gramercy Park, that old house was sold to another wealthy family, namely Stuyvesant and Mamie Fish, both of whom descended from very respectable old stock, old Hudson Valley in New York City merchant and landowning stock. They were very prominent in society, and in the 1880s, they literally could have afforded to live anywhere. At the time, most of high society had moved as far north as Murray Hill and even above 42nd Street. And the fish, they were never referred to as the fishes, they were the fish. They chose to buy an, a 40-year-old house on Gramercy Park and renovate it. They were the ones who added a lot of those late Victorian additions like the mansard roof to that house. And it was from there that Mamie Fish hosted most of her grandest Gilded Age entertainments. Now, they did ultimately in the 1890s move to the Upper East Side, but that house is not just a great tangible connection to the very colorful, controversial character of Mamie Fish during the Gilded Age, but it's also a great example of the staying power of Gramercy as a neighborhood because that house represents about 100 years of residential evolution. And what about the players? The players was originally a relatively simple brownstone house, very large, very opulent inside, but generally very simple in keeping with the style of the mid-1840s and early 1850s. And just like the the fish house a couple doors down, that the, what's now the Players Club was purchased as a home in the 1880s by the very wealthy and respected Shakespearean actor Edwin Booth, whose name might sound familiar to you because he was the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Um, now, Edwin Booth did not take part in anything to do with the assassination, so he retained his reputation and remained a very successful actor for the rest of his life. And like the fish, he could have lived really anywhere in the 1880s, and he chose to buy an old house on Gramercy, have it renovated. He took apartments for himself on the upper floors of the home, and the lower floors of the home he used as a clubhouse for his fellow thespians, fellow actors. And so in that use, he referred to the house as the Players Club. And when he died, the whole house was left to the players and it remains a club for people in the theater industry today. Now, as we move a little bit further north, we keep going here. We land around 23rd Street and we're sort of mid-century, maybe a little bit beyond that. And we land at Madison Square. So can you take us into the world of Madison Square? And so we're sort of edging into Gilded Age now about this point, right? Maybe 1870s, right? Mm -hmm. What was going on then? Yeah, Madison Square really exists on the cusp of old and new New York because here, I mean, in a very real way, you see the clash of old respectability and new respectability because Madison Square is literally where Fifth Avenue intersects Broadway. And as I said, Broadway until the 1830s was the address to have. If you were wealthy and socially prominent enough, you lived on Broadway. And as Broadway fell from grace with its rise as a theater district and a theater, theater thoroughfare as the Great White Way, Fifth Avenue would ultimately replace it as that address that was expected of people of a certain social pedigree. And it's at Madison Square that they actually exist. And from there, Broadway veers out to the West and is fully historically been given over to theater and entertainment. I mean, that's still the stretch of Broadway north of Herald Square that is today the center of New York City's theater industry. I mean, we refer to the theater industry as Broadway collectively. But at Madison Square, you see a clash of that entertainment and commercialism with the northward movement of respectable society. Now, there, there's a lot to talk about in the immediate area around Madison Square, but the one biggest thing is you have to understand when looking at a map of Manhattan as society was marching uptown, once you get to Madison Square and north of 23rd Street, 
respectable society was very much hemmed in on both sides. On the West, I already explained that there, you know, you had Broadway and the theater district, but further West, west of Broadway, uh, was an increasingly degraded district of vice, uh, known to history as the Tenderloin. Uh, now, the Tenderloin is obviously more famous in San Francisco today, but San Francisco's Tenderloin gets its name from New York City's Tenderloin. Ours was first, and our Tenderloin was essentially what's now West Chelsea, up through Hell's Kitchen, and eventually it would stretch all the way up to where Lincoln Center is today. That whole west side of the island, growing up in the shadow of the theater district along Broadway, was the center um, not only for a very dense tenement, immigrant, poor district. A lot of my poor German ancestors lived over in that part of the city. Uh, but it was also an area uh, rife with crime, illicit businesses like brothels, gambling dens, cheap underground saloons. And it was called the Tenderloin because the police who were stationed there could get so many bribes and kickbacks from the illegal businesses that they considered that neighborhood to be the best cut of beef of New York. So they could literally become millionaires by being assigned to the Tenderloin. So it was very desirable for police to be stationed there. Now, this isn't a conversation about the Tenderloin, but just know that from Broadway West, high society couldn't live there respectably. So that was done. To the east of Madison Square, um, east of Madison Avenue is Park Avenue or histor historically Fourth Avenue. And from the 1830s onward, running down the middle of Fourth Avenue was the city's first steam-powered train line, the New York and Harlem Line, which as the name implies, connected New York City downtown to the village of Harlem up the north end of the island. Now, being a steam-powered train line, these trains belch smoke and soot and noise, and so Fourth Avenue was a no-go zone for anybody of any social respectability. And everything east of that, similar to the Tenderloin on the west side, was a, a dense tenement immigrant district, and along the East River were all sorts of undesirable institutions uh, like hospitals. There were also um, whole blocks that were dedicated to the collection of dead animals, dead horses, as well as horse manure. It would all be dumped on the riverfront of the East River. So. All that is to say that from Broadway West, it was a no-go zone for wealthy society, and from 4th Avenue East, uh, likewise, a no-go zone for wealthy society, which left the northward trajectory of high society hemmed in to just two avenues that just happened to lie between those two degraded sides of the island, and those are Madison and Fifth Avenues. So it's really Madison Square that begins the, the northward flow of society up those two avenues that today are shorthand for wealth and opulence. And with that, Keith and I are going to take a short break, and we'll be back because there is so much more to say. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, we are mapping a chase up the island of Manhattan. And I'm here with tour guide, historian, and writer Keith Talion, who is taking us on that journey. 
So, Keith, so just to give people a landmark that they might know, let's take the Empire State Building. So now we're up at 34th Street. And again, we're sort of really edging into the Gilded Age at this point. And guess what? The Astors come back. What's going on in that neighborhood that we now think of as the Empire State Building neighborhood? Yeah. So where the Empire stands at the southwest corner of 34th Street and 5th Avenue, today we don't really think of that as being part of the neighborhood of Murray Hill. Uh, Murray Hill as a neighborhood still exists today, but it tends to be thought of as being further east, maybe Madison or even Lexington Avenue and eastward. But from a historical perspective, the name Murray Hill uh, really described the neighborhood centered around 5th and Madison Avenues, maybe eventually 4th Avenue or Park Avenue in the upper 20s up to about 40th or 42nd Street. That neighborhood, you know, as the neighborhood has become less residential, we've pushed Murray Hill further east, which you know, the, the east 20s and 30s today are still very residential. So that's where Murray Hill is in our minds today. But historically, it was centered more around 5th and Madison Avenues. And one of the first wealthy families to push north of Madison Square into this rural hinterland known as Murray Hill were actually some of the Astors. Uh, now, John Jacob Astor, the family you know, economic patriarch, died in 1848, and he was by all accounts a major miser. The only meaningful amount of money that he left to any kind of philanthropic endeavor was about $400,000 for the establishment of a library down on Lafayette Place or Lafayette Street. The Astor Library was in the building that's now the public theater and still exists on Lafayette Place. So when John Jacob Astor died in 1848, his will left almost his entire estate both money and land intact to his son, William Backhouse Astor. And William Backhouse Astor had two sons, the eldest being John Jacob III and the younger being William Backhouse Jr. Now, because those two sons, those two grandsons of John Jacob Astor had grown up on and around Lafayette Place and Bond Street, the neighborhood developed by their grandfather, they grew up a around a lot of the more pedigreed, respectable families in the city. And so the Astors, who hitherto had been looked down upon as poor, fur-peddling immigrants. John Jacob Astor was a very much disliked man during his life. Uh, he apparently spoke in a very aggressive German-English growl laced with profanity, and he was a fastidious tracker of all of his income and rent from all the buildings and land that he owned. So he was just very much not a very well-liked man. So it's somewhat of a miracle that his grandsons were able to marry so well into these old, more respectable families. And that only happened because they grew up on that respectable neighborhood that John Jacob Astor had developed downtown. Now, uh, the importance of uh, the more important aspect of the story is that the second son, the second grandson, so if, there won't be a test over the family tree of the Astors, but just so you know, it's John Jacob Astor, his son, William Backhouse, and then his elder son, John Jacob, and the second son, William Backhouse. That second son, William Backhouse Jr., uh, married very advantageously a woman named Caroline Skirmerhorn. She was descended from the Skirmerhorns of like Hoyt Skirmerhorn subway station in Brooklyn today. They were very wealthy merchants in New York City and a very old and respectable family in New York City. And so essentially what happened in that union of William Backhouse Jr. and his wife Caroline Skirmerhorn was that the 
immense Astor wealth was married into a pedigreed family, giving the Astor, essentially laundering the Astor name and giving the Astors a sort of pedigree they otherwise wouldn't have had. Now, understanding that when both sons, John and William, got married to these pedigreed women, part of their wedding gift was a piece of land that had been purchased by their grandfather far uptown on Murray Hill. And that piece of land was the old, I think it was called the Thompson Farm, and it existed on the west side of Fifth Avenue. And the land the two brothers were given as wedding gifts were the corners of what's now 33rd and 34th on the west side of Fifth Avenue. So if you can picture where the Empire State Building now stands, at 33rd Street was John Jacob Astor III and his wife Charlotte. On the north side of the block at 34th uh, was William Backhouse Jr. and his wife Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor. In between the houses was a shared garden. Their carriage houses were behind on the side streets. And it was a little Astor compound essentially on that block. With these young wealthy families moving up to Murray Hill, the floodgates were essentially open to the rapid development of Murray Hill as a as a bastion of young gilded wealth. Um, and so by the mid-1860s, by the outbreak of the Civil War, Murray Hill, everything on Fifth and Madison Avenues and the blocks in between had been filled with very fine brick and brownstone mansions housing the most ex- uh, the most uh, respectable and powerful families in the city. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit. You know, some historians say that every neighborhood gets about 20 years and then it moves on and moves Mm. up. So we're going to jump ahead about 20 years Mm. and we're going to go up to Fifth Avenue and really sort of land in pretty much the the middle of the Gilded Age in the 1880s in the area that uh, listeners will know as the area around St. Patrick's Cathedral today. And if one looked across the street and up Fifth Avenue, uh, roughly between 51st and 58th Street, they would have seen an extraordinary line of very European-influenced mansions owned by the Vanderbilts. Keith, can you talk about the Vanderbilts and who they were in relation to the Astors and what this particular line of architecture can tell us? Yeah, so the Vanderbilts were an interesting side story to the Astors. So the Vanderbilts are a really interesting family because they, despite being, as their name might imply they are an old Dutch family, but they had for generations just been poor farmers on Staten Island. They began to rise in prominence in the early 19th century by running ferries around New York Harbor and that ferry empire built by the Vanderbilts would would eventually extend to routes outside of the harbor along Long Island Sound, up the Hudson River, and eventually all the way down the eastern seaboard of the United States, making the Vanderbilts very, very wealthy. But sort of how John Jacob Astor reinvested his fur fortune into real estate, the Vanderbilts eventually would get out of the ferry business and reinvest their wealth in railroads. Now, headed up by family patriarch Cornelius Vanderbilt, known to history as the Commodore, uh, which was actually a name given to him somewhat pejoratively because he was this young, tenacious kid from Staten Island who took over his father's ferry business. Um, And so wealthy New Yorkers kind of jokingly referred to him as the Commodore uh, because he ran these ships around the harbor. That's where the name comes from. Now, for the last decade or so of his life, he became vastly more wealthy by buying up rail lines, including the one that I mentioned earlier, uh, the New York and Harlem Railroad. So it was in the mid-1860s that the Vanderbilts consolidated their rail empire, which would make them extraordinarily wealthy and and famous to history. But 
What happened was in 1877, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore, the patriarch of the family, he died. And similar to John Jacob Astor, Cornelius jealously kept his entire estate intact and passed it on to his son, which to my endless confusion as a researcher, the eldest son of Cornelius was also named William. In the Astors, it was William Backhouse Astor. In the Vanderbilts, it's William Henry Vanderbilt, known among friends as Billy Vanderbilt, which sometimes makes it easier to remember who was who. But when Cornelius the Commodore died in 1877, virtually his entire estate passed whole to his son, Billy, much to the chagrin of the other 12 or 13 Vanderbilt children. But here's where we get to Fifth Avenue, because with their inheritance, Billy and his adult children wanted to build houses commensurate with their new wealth. The problem for them was that by the 1870s, all the respectable blocks on the avenues of Murray Hill on Fifth and Madison Avenue were full. There literally was no room at the inn for the Vanderbilts in Murray Hill. And so they were forced to move north of 42nd Street to a strip of land that I've read to described as a goat-infested wilderness between 42nd Street and 59th Street, what's now Bryant Park and Central Park. It was only there that there were plots of land large enough for the newly wealthy Vanderbilts to build houses big enough for their, you know, their sense of personal pride and ego um, while still getting the addresses that they wanted on 5th or Madison Avenue, chiefly for them 5th Avenue. North of 42nd Street is where we find what came to be known as Vanderbilt Row. Billy and six of his adult kids built seven immense, mostly French chateau-style mansions between 51st Street and 58th Street, all in the span of about a decade. And so this formerly rocky, rough-and-tumble backwater strip of Fifth Avenue north of 42nd Street became, thanks to the Vanderbilts, the headquarters, essentially, for the newly ascendant new money families post-Civil War in, in what we now refer to as the Gilded Age. And so when we talk about old money versus new money, we now see the rise of these two camps, uh, North and south of 42nd Street with old, more pedigreed families living south of 42nd Street on Murray Hill and the newer up-and-coming families like the Vanderbilts living north of 42nd Street on quote-unquote Vanderbilt Row. Now, as we continue our movement forward, we get to the almost Central Park, even though we're not quite yet there. And I want to talk about a woman that I found endlessly fascinating, and I know you do too, Mary Mason Jones, Mm -hmm. who was very important in the world of New York City architecture. And maybe listeners are not familiar with her. You did a brilliant Instagram post recently Mm -hmm. on her. So, just who was Mary Mason Jones? Yeah, Mary Mason Jones and actually her sister Rebecca, who gets less credit in history. The, the two of them were very much ahead of the curve. And there's there's a legend attached to them. I, I've never been able to prove whether or not it's actually true that this is where the quote comes from. But supposedly the Joneses are where we get the phrase keeping up with the Joneses because the Jones family was so famous for doing things ahead of the rest of respectable society. And so specifically Mary Mason and her sister Rebecca, they inherited land that the Jones family had owned for generations on Upper Fifth Avenue near where Central Park was under construction. Most people of their upbringing and their wealth would have just inherited this land and sat on it and waited for it to become an investment opportunity. But Mary and the Joneses were not ordinary wealthy people. And so rather than just sit on this land and let it sit empty, Mary first, followed a couple years later by Rebecca, uh, Mary built a row of marble French chateau style houses on the land she inherited, uh, what's now 57th to 58th Street on the east side of Fifth Avenue, where Louis Vuitton and the men's Bergdorf store are today. That was Mary's piece of property. And so she built these houses that not only were 
nearly a mile north of accepted society when they were completed in 1869, but were also stylistically a radical departure from the traditional brownstone and brick style of uh, houses that most people were living in at the time. Keep in mind, people like the Fish and uh, Edwin Booth were living in old brick and brownstone houses down around Gramercy Park at the time that Mary Mason Jones was building a shockingly white marble uh, double mansard chateau on Upper Fifth Avenue. And so there are photos from the early 1870s uh, looking over what's now Midtown Manhattan when it's still mostly gravel and dirt pits. And then you've got Mary Mason Jones's you know, mini Versailles sitting in the middle of all of this all by herself. And so Mary Mason Jones, who was distantly related to Edith Wharton, was later immortalized in the in Wharton's book, The Age of Innocence, as Mrs. Manson Mingott, who in the book um, would famously sit in her south facing parlor waiting for society to catch up to her. That was Mary Mason Jones in real life. And society did catch up to her, right? Eventually, they did yeah. come up to see her. Absolutely. So speaking to that point, so as society continues its march, so now let's move ahead. Now we're in the 1890s and Central Park is flourishing. And if we took a walk up Fifth Avenue along Central Park in, say, the 1890s, what would we have seen? So by the 1890s, you begin to see the very first tentative steps that society was taking north of 59th Street to live along Central Park. You have to remember Central Park had been under construction. It was essentially a quarry and a construction site through most of the 1860s, 70s. And even into the 1880s, it was still considered kind of a, a quirk or a folly out in the middle of nowhere. But... Developers and landowners knew from experience that the city was going to continue growing northward. And so even as people began to move north of 59th Street in the 1870s and, and in some places even earlier than that, developers held on to the Fifth Avenue plots facing the park, waiting for them to become more valuable because they knew society made its way one block at a time up the island. So uh, you see the the construction of the Metropolitan Club on Fifth Avenue in, in the earlier mid-1890s. Um, and little by little, you see mansions cropping up on Lower Fifth Avenue. Aside from that, though, you know, as far, you know, by the by 1890, people hadn't really moved north of 65th or maybe 70th Street. Uh, the only other mansions north of that were a, a couple of anomalous mansions all the way up in the 90s built by the brewery barons of Yorkville. But there was this gap of essentially just empty land waiting to be developed between the 90s and the 60s as society began to inch its way uptown. Now, one of the things that really distinguished the Gilded Age, particularly in the 1880s, was the development of these great cultural institutions here in New York, the opening of the Metropolitan Opera in 1883. But also, we had the move of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, because that started way downtown. But by the 1880s, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has started to rise actually in Central Park, right, Keith? Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that yeah, so the Met, the Met Museum, like many cultural institutions, including churches and including other museums and and major major cultural institutions of the 19th century, they understood the northward movement of society, and so they often would try to get ahead of the curve by building much further uptown than they really needed to, to wait for society to catch up to them, so that by the time their buildings were finished or fleshed out, they would be surrounded by the kind of society that they wanted to be associated with. And so that was part of the reason why the Met and the American Museum of Natural History on the west side of the park chose to jump so far ahead of society, because they knew in time society would catch up to them, which it did. Um, and now the Met's 
sits very comfortably in the center of one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. But what's interesting to me looking up the, the rest of Manhattan is how many institutions tried to follow that same forward-looking trajectory and missed because society didn't continue marching uptown the way everybody expected. So things like the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which still today sits on the east side of Amsterdam Avenue at 110th Street, built all the way up at 110th Street, fully expecting society to catch up to them by the year 2000. There's actually a map I ran across in my research once that showed where they expected this, where the where city leaders expected the center of wealthy society to be over time. Now, this article is from like 1904. And so about every 20 years, they had a dot on the map of where society would be if it followed the current trajectory. And the, uh, the expectation was that the center of gilded society would be at about Riverside Drive and 116th Street by the year 2000. And so the Cathedral of St. John the Divine was built up at 110th Street in anticipation of the arrival of society by the time the church was finished. Now, of course, if you're familiar with St. John the Divine, you know it's still not finished today, 130 years after construction began, giving it the nickname St. John the Unfinished. But there are other institutions like um, the Hispanic Society Museum and Library up at 155th Street. Very same idea. When that was built around 1904, Washington Heights was a newly ascendant, relatively well-to-do neighborhood with the opening of the subway, it was relatively accessible, and the expectation was that society would continue marching uptown, and it did to an extent, but not as much as anybody anticipated. So the Met, in moving up to the 80s on Fifth Avenue in the 1860s, 1870s, was doing what many institutions were doing through the 19th and even into the 20th centuries. Just luckily for the Met, society did fulfill that promise in moving up around them. Now, I want to end our tour with a mansion which is still fairly intact to this day uh, in the low 90s, and that's the mansion of Andrew Carnegie, which is now the Cooper Hewitt Museum. And you do tours specifically of this neighborhood now called Carnegie Hill. Can you talk about that mansion, Carnegie, what that all meant and what it symbolized? Yeah, so I, I actually do a tour of Central Park and we discuss the Carnegie Mansion on that. And I have done tours with the Cooper Hewitt. I love the Cooper Hewitt. Big plug for them. I've done tours with them. The neighborhood is really interesting and it's called Carnegie Hill or most people say Carnegie Hill, but it actually should be Carnegie Hill because Andrew Carnegie, when he moved up there, the house was completed in 1902. It was almost a Mary Mason Jones level of eccentricity that he moved so far uptown. There was a full mile or so of no man's land between Carnegie's house at 90th Street, 91st Street, and the the edge of society when he built that house beginning in 1898, 1899. With Carnegie, somebody as respected and wealthy as him moving that far uptown, it uh, was open season for the entire stretch of Fifth Avenue and even Madison Avenue and all the cross streets in between, between the existing edge of society around 72nd Street and Carnegie's house up at 90th. And so in very short order with the completion of Carnegie's house in 1902, 1903, that entire stretch of Fifth Avenue was completed almost up to the border with East Harlem. Now, Carnegie moved that far north because he, you know, having spent most of his life getting wealthy and being a very a successful businessman. He didn't get married until very late in life. And then he and his wife only had one child, and that was a decade after they got married. So Carnegie was of relatively advanced age when he became a father. And so he very much wanted to enjoy whatever time he had left in you know what passes for the countryside in uh, late 19th century New York, which was the far Upper East Side. And so he bought two entire block fronts between 90th and 92nd Street, one block for his mansion and gardens, despite being right across from Central Park, he wanted his own private garden, and also the neighboring block so that he could protect that 
develop that land uh, from any untoward development. So he held onto that land until he could sell it to um, people that he knew would build respectable houses next to him. But again, the the point here is that that area is known to history as Carnegie Hill because his decision to move that far north helped draw society further north than they otherwise would have, earlier than they otherwise would have, and led to the essential filling up of the Upper East Side and the filling up of Manhattan around that time. Wow, Keith, that is an amazing tour that you have given all of us starting way downtown and moving all the way up to Fifth Avenue in in the 90s. But I have to say, that's nothing compared to the tour that you did during the pandemic, for which you received a tremendous amount of press. You personally walked every single street on the island of Manhattan. Before we leave here, can you talk about that? And what did you discover in doing that? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a way for me to fill my days during the pandemic. I had I had previously worked a corporate job for a decade and lost that job in the very early days of the of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and so with more all the time in the world to fill and and nothing to do at you know no no corporate responsibilities anymore. Um, I set out walking Manhattan and set myself the the arbitrary goal of walking every street unsure how much that even was or if it was even possible. Um, and I would just walk around as much as I could, as much as my legs would allow on any given day and come home and log that walk into a map that I kept in Google Maps. And over time, I slowly began to fill up the map. And I did, in fact, finish the project on December 29th, 2020. But um as for what I learned during that, I mean, one, I learned ju- there are far more streets in Manhattan than I than I understood, and I also knew the island far less intimately than I took for granted. I had, by that point, I had lived in Manhattan for about a decade. I've now lived here thirteen years, uh, so it was about a decade then when I was doing this project, and I really thought going into it that I knew everything there was to know. I thought I knew every neighborhood, every nook and cranny, and this was just going to be an exercise in getting fresh air and uh, and getting outside during the pandemic. But I consistently found blocks and corners of the city that I had never seen before and knew nothing about, which was amazing to me. I, I it, it really humbled me as a New Yorker that even after all these years, there was so much that I didn't know and that I had never seen. And there was so much to research and so much to learn. And all of it ties together. Uh, the, the, I really particularly loved digging into the what I call the borderlands between existing neighborhoods. I, you know, I have a pretty good grasp on what Chelsea is and I have a pretty good grasp on what the West Village is, but exploring the borderland between the two uh, was really satisfying for me seeing the interplay of the various corners of the island. Keith, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here on The Gilded Gentleman today and for our race, our chase up the island of Manhattan. You've given so much perspective into understanding not only what's there today, what certainly was once upon a time and the history that corresponds to all of that and and how the Gilded Age really evolved. I think that's so important. Thank you so much for being here. Will you please come back and can we do another show? Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you, Keith, so much. And to my listeners, to find Keith, do follow his extraordinary Instagram account for wonderful posts on all aspects of New York City history, at Keith York City. And to take one of Keith's wonderful tours in person, go to his website, keithyorkcity.com, and sign up for his newsletter. 
And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes, do please leave your calling card and write a review wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me to manage the cost of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.